0: 1 Samuel, chapters 9 and 10. Si habla español, abran sus libros a 1 Samuel, capítulo 9, versículo 1 a capítulo 10, versículo 27. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, know that this is a safe place to learn how to read the Bible. We're all learning how to read or understand or apply the Bible in some fashion. So even if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, just open up your phone's browser and type in 1 Samuel 9 and follow along. I'll do the rest. Now, we're in 1 Samuel, which is a book about the king who is, about Israel's king, Yahweh, God himself, who had called them his people, whom he had said, I will be your God, your king who had delivered them from slavery in Egypt, who had conquered nations for them as he led them into the promised land. A people who we discovered in chapter eight had said, you know what? We want a king like all the other nations. They they had been ruled by God through judges and prophets and priests. And as Israel continued to spiral down following their own desires, seeing the consequences of their own choices, they said, you know what? I think our problem is that we don't have a king. We want to be like the nations. Even though God had called them out from the nations, they said, we want a king like the nations. And God told Samuel, his servant, do what they ask. They're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me as king over them. And that's what brings us to 1 Samuel 9. Now this morning we have a long text and and I'm going to approach it a little bit differently, a little bit unconventionally. This is going to be a different kind of a sermon. I'm going to read this passage in four parts, explaining as we go, and then we'll spend the rest of the time unpacking what God has for us in this text. So with that... We'll read the first section, pray, and then get off to the races. So beginning in 1 Samuel 9, verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becharath, son of Aphia, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise. Go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalishah, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, But they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuth, Saul said to his servant who was with him, "'Come, let us go back, "'lest my father cease to care about the donkeys "'and become anxious about us.' But he said to him, "'Behold, there's a man of God in this city, and, "'and he is a man who is held in honor. "'All that he says comes true, so now let us go there, Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to a servant, but if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, come, let us go to the seer for Today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, "'Well said, come, let us go.' So they went to the city where the man of God was. And as they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, "'Is the seer here?' They answered, "'He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry, he has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place.'" As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these stories, these stories that aren't just merely recountings of history, but lessons for us to learn from, and even glimpses of the coming Savior, of the one whom we need to encounter today. So we pray, Lord, today would you send your Spirit to speak to us, to open our eyes, to uncover our ears, that we might behold what you have for us, the good that you've ordained for us to hear and to experience and to be changed by this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So here we meet, Saul. Saul, a man whom, if you know your Old Testament, you've probably heard of before, and you know where this story goes. But Saul, he would have won the Mr. Israel contest if there had been such a contest. He was was strong. He was the tallest in all of Israel. He was the most handsome man in the land. There, there was genuinely no one like him in those respects. And, and, and verses 1 through, 3, 1 through 13 recount ordinary events. Saul's dad loses his donkeys. And so he says, son, go and find my donkeys. Take, take one of my servants with you and go and find my donkeys. So he goes from town to town, can't find the donkeys. And when he's about to give up, his servant says, wait, 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 wait. I've heard that there's a guy in this town who knows things. When he says things will happen, they come true, so let's go talk to him. And Saul goes, well, I mean, if, if we have something to give him, sure, let's go. And so they go to the town and they ask a, a bunch of young women, do you, do you know where this, where this guy is? And they say, yeah, he's up at the high places. Go, go! if, you, if you're quick, you'll catch him. I mean, just so ordinary, so mundane. But then you hit... Verse 14, read, read with me verse 14 through chapter 10, verse 9. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way to the high place. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall Anoint him to be prince over my people, Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered, Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you? and for, your, for all your father's house. Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head, at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you. Of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, see, what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof. And he lay down to sleep. Then, the, then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out of the street. And as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he's passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Chapter 10. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, The donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, What shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you'll meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal. And behold, I'm coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. What we learn is that these ordinary events were orchestrated by God. God had chosen Saul and was leading him to Samuel. But Samuel didn't recognize Saul. He was just a, a seer. He was so, sort of a practical means to his end of finding his dad's donkeys. But, but Saul meets Samuel, and Samuel says, are you not all that Israel desires? Literally, you, Saul, are what everybody in Israel wants. And Saul just goes, what? And Samuel doesn't even answer his question and just says, hey, here, sit down at at the the place of honor at the table. I'm going to invite 30 guests for dinner. You're going to be at the place of honor. You're going to get the choice portion of the meal And Saul is just going, what is happening? I'm, I'm a lowly Benjaminite. And so the meal ends. He goes up to the roof to sleep. And in the morning, Samuel sends the servant on ahead of them and privately with Saul anoints him with oil and says, you are God's anointed to be king over this land. And again, Saul just doesn't even know how to handle this. And Samuel says, these are signs... To prove to you that what I'm saying isn't just a bunch of hogwash. And all of the signs that Samuel had predicted ended up coming to pass. Including what we encounter in verses 10 through 12. Read verses 10 through 12. So when they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him. And the Spirit of God rushed upon him. And he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw How he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore, it became a proverb Is Saul also among the prophets? Now, this is strange, isn't it? Saul all of a sudden prophesies. He joins with a bunch of prophets and he prophesies. This is strange, but there are two things that, that you need to see here, okay? One, it's Saul needed the Spirit. He didn't come with batteries included, as it were. He needed the Spirit to fall on him, and this is important, and you'll see why soon. Secondly, is this is an instance of non-authoritative prophecy. Here at this church, we actually believe that the... the the gifts of the Spirit that were active in the first century church are still active today in the church, including the gift of prophecy. Not prophecy in the sense that, you know, thus saith thus the Lord, speaking on behalf of God, equivalent with Scripture, but, but rather spontaneous encouragement, empowered by God's Spirit. And that's an exa- this is an example of just one of those things. Saul doesn't gather with the prophets and... and, and Begins speaking words that are on par with Scripture. No, it's, it's spontaneous utterances empowered by the Spirit. It's just a little note that's, impo- that's important as you read this passage and read the Bible. So he prophesies, and then this whole passage culminates in verses 17 through 27, the, the coronation ceremony, as it were. Look at verse 17, or verse, verse 14. Saul, Saul's uncle said, said to him and to his servant, where did you go? And he said to seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, well, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Saul had spoken, or of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah and he said to the people of Israel, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. God says, I did that, mind you. But today you have rejected your God. "'who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. "'And you have said to him, "'Set a king over us. "'Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord "'by your tribes and by your thousands. "'Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, "'and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. "'He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, "'and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. "'And Saul the son of Kish was taken by Lot.' But when they sought him, he couldn't be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him, among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he held his peace. And thus begins the monarchy in Israel. This is Israel's first king, the one that they had asked for. This scene is the second of three coronations, as it were. There's first the anointing at the beginning of chapter 10, and then this coronation before the people of Israel, and then there's another one in chapter 11, verse 15. But when Saul is presented with the prospect of coming kingship, he's ashamed of it. His uncle asks him, What's happened with Samuel? He doesn't even mention it to his uncle. He's scared. He doesn't want what the Lord has called him to. When he he is actually taken by Lot, where is he? He's, He's hiding among the baggage. They can't find him. He doesn't want to be recognized as king. Samuel reminds them, the people of Israel, that their desire for a king was a rejection of God. God said, I, Yahweh, I am your king, but since you asked for another king, here he is, and there he is hiding in the baggage. So what's going on in this story? I mean, this is a momentous moment in the history of Israel. It's why we just took 15 minutes reading through every word of these two chapters. These are an important two chapters. But is there anything for us to learn in this? What's going on here in this story of the calling and coronation of Israel's first king? Well, let me answer that question by telling you another story. When I was in high school, when I was 17 years old, my first car, which was a 1993 Suburban, broke down in the middle of an intersection. 290,000 miles in, it just died. And it never ran again. So I was without a car. And so my dad, he said, okay, listen, I'll give you a $3,000 budget. Go find a car, and I'll give you three thousand dollars. So I said, "Fantastic!" So I hopped on Auto Trader, and I start scrolling with the limit set at three thousand dollars. And it's a sedan, sedan, old sedan, old minivan, sedan, 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 broken-down sedan, sedan, and then scrolls up a Mercedes SL. Oh yeah! This Mercedes, this black Mercedes sports car. And I look at it and I think, that's what I want. That's what I'm getting. It, it's, it's listed at $2,999. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is, this is the car that I'm getting. And, and, and I mean, suddenly I had this strong desire for it, to roll up to school in my black Mercedes SL. I wanted the name, I wanted the brand, I wanted the horsepower, I, I wanted this car. But my dad, when I stood up and said, Dad, this is what I want, he looked at me and he said, no. No, find something else. Find, pick one of these sedans, one of these old minivans on, on the page here. Find something different. He knew that despite my longing for it, it wasn't what was best for me. He, being my dad, out of love for me, knowing what was best for me, chose not to get me the car that I thought Was good for me. In chapters 9 and 10, Israel thought they knew what was best for them. But all the while, God is slowly and graciously proving that that only He knows what's good for His people. See, what Saul and that Mercedes SL illustrate is that you and God have different definitions of what's good for you. You and God have different definitions of what's good for you. You have firm ideas of what you want in life. But what you think is good for you isn't always what's best for you. Let me ask you this. A year ago, what did you you want out of life? What did you want out of life a year ago? Has everything that you wanted come to pass? I asked the kids this in front this morning. Have you gotten everything that you wanted? If not, then can you still be confident God is working for your good? Or what if you did get what, what you want? Is that a sign that you and God are on the same page regarding what's good? Or is there perhaps a deeper lesson to learn? And I think 1 Samuel chapters 9 and 10 would submit that yes, there, there is. So this morning, let, let's... let's begin to explore this, this, this idea that you and God have different ideas, different definitions of what's good for you. There'll be two points to guide the rest of our time this morning. One, Saul, an apparently good thing. And two, though you don't see his name in the text, there are glimpses of him. Two, Jesus, the actual best thing. Saul, though, is an apparently good thing. There, there was a, an alternate title that I had for this first point here, which was, there's no one like Saul in the areas that don't matter. And, and, and it's true. He, listen, my dad didn't end up letting me get the, the Mercedes. But imagine that I had insisted and said, Dad, I want it, though. Come on, let me get it. And, and he decided, okay. decided he wanted to teach me a lesson and said, okay, but you're going to regret this. I'm only doing this to show you how poor of a choice this is. I'll let you get it to show you that what you want is not what is best. Now Saul was Mr. Israel. When Israel wanted a king, they wanted a Saul. They wanted a tall, handsome, strong man. And God gave it to them. They insisted, and he said, okay, He's the Mercedes sports car in a lineup of sedans. He represents the height of what is desirable on the surface. Think of what you want most in life. Most of us want want the Saul package. We want to level up to the Saul package, that which looks best on the surface, That that, that which is most apparently good. What kind of home do you want? If you're going to answer that honestly, you probably want the Saul package. You want a, a home that you're not renting but that you own and probably don't have any payments on, that is maintenance-free, you don't need to fix it up at all. Uh, you don't have to clean despite your kids just making it messy every single day. You want four beds, three baths. You want the Saul package. What, 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 kind of, what kind of lifestyle do you want? I would imagine you want the Saul package, a stress free, worry, free, suffering, free, comfortable lifestyle. A lifestyle that doesn't include the blemishes of whatever you're going through right now. What kind of dating life do you want? What kind of marriage do you want? What kind of career do you want? What kind of relationship with your kids do you want? What kind of physical health do you want? What kind of life trajectory do you want? I would bet you want the Saul package. You, you want what looks most apparently good. You, you want what the next person would say, well, yeah, I get how you would want that. Of course you do. And, and, and listen, those things that are apparently good are actually good in many ways. I'm not up here saying these are bad things. You shouldn't want those things. This is where we have to be careful because in the case of Saul, most of us know where this story is going, right? We know, we know that, that in a few short chapters, Saul's decline is rapid and it's brutal. It's a tragic story. But in these few chapters, Saul and, and the monarchy overall are, are presented actually really positively by the author of Samuel. There's a lot of positive language. Why? Because he's the man that God chooses according to what the people want. You see, God, God says, okay, Israel, you've, you've given me a job description for what you want, I'll go out and find the best man for the job. And he does. He is the man that God chooses. And listen, listen. he chooses mercifully for his people. If you look down at verse 16 of chapter 10, he is the man that God had chosen to relieve them of the Philistine oppression. So Saul is capable enough, at the very least, to defeat Israel's enemies. That is God's mercy. Saul is, in small part, an expression of God's mercy toward his people. And oftentimes those things that, that are apparently good to you, when you, do get, when you do get them, even though they're not what you need, you still do experience God's mercy in them. In the same way that if I had gotten that Mercedes SL, I would have experienced the small mercy of, of that Mercedes transporting me from point A to point B for a short period of time because what I haven't told you yet is the reason why my dad said, no, you're not getting that. It's because this Mercedes had 300,000 miles on it. My Suburban had just died at 290,000, and this Mercedes beat it by an extra 10,000. It looked nice, but if you lifted the hood, it probably had two more weeks on this thing. The owner wasn't, wasn't selling it to to give somebody a great deal. He was trying to recover whatever cash he could out of this thing that was about to be a junker. My dad knew it from the get-go. I was too naive to understand that. I was too naive to understand that. Israel was too naive, too, too idolatrous in their desires, too prideful in asserting what they thought they knew was best to understand what was happening. Because, because if you looked under the hood of Saul, you would see what the author of 1 Samuel very subtly highlights. You see in chapter 9, verses 1 through 20, Saul couldn't find his father's donkeys. He, he couldn't perform the simple task finding his father's possessions, and he actually just gave up at some point until his servant said, no, 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 no! let's not give up. In chapter 9, verse 18, he, he couldn't recognize God's servant. He just saw Samuel as some means to his practical end. In, in verse 16, chapter 10, and, and during the coronation ceremony, Saul cowered from God's call upon his life. He had to be given a new heart, chapter 10, verse 9, says God gave him a new heart. In other words, he wasn't a man after God's own heart. His heart is not what qualified him to be king. Despite his physical strength, he, he's actually weak and needs to be filled with the Spirit. His battery's not included. And ultimately, while we don't see it in these chapters, but we will see it, Saul does ultimately fulfill God's warning that he gives to Israel in chapter 8. You remember that, that warning? What was that warning? God said, if you choose a king like this, you will be his slaves. You will be his slaves. He will take your possessions and your sons and your daughters and your lands, and you will be miserable. And Saul and the monarchy did ultimately fulfill that. So you look under the hood and you realize it's only a short matter of time before this turns pretty bad. You see, like Saul, the the apparent good things that we want aren't in themselves bad things, but sometimes they're not the actual best thing. They're not the actual best thing. What is the actual best thing? Well, I'm so glad you asked. That brings us to the second point, Jesus, the actual best thing. And in the alternate title for, for this point is there's no one like Jesus in all the areas that actually do matter. There was no one like Saul in all, in all the areas that, that don't matter. But Jesus, there is no one like him in all the ways that do matter. A.W. Tozer, author and theologian, whose words have stood the test of time, he said, God knows us better than we know ourselves. And he knows exactly what we need and when we need it. You believe that. You see, Saul wasn't what Israel needed. The king who is, God, was showing them through Saul that what they thought was good was not what was best a thousand years later, that the king who is would send the king of kings who succeeded in every single place where Saul failed. You see, Jesus, Jesus finds all that he seeks. Saul couldn't find his donkeys. But Luke 19.10 says that the Son of Man came to seek, but not just seek. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And he succeeded in that. John 10, 28, Jesus says, no one will snatch my sheep out of my hands. Unlike Saul, who, who didn't know God's servant, Jesus knows all those whom the Father has called. John 10, 14 and 15, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Jesus doesn't need to be given a new heart. He, he, he for eternity past, has had a, a heart that was after his father's will. John 5.19 says that the son, speaking of Jesus, can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. Unlike Saul, who cowered from, God, from God's call, Jesus embraced God's call and in Gethsemane, anticipating the pain that's to come on the cross, asking for, for the Father to, to relieve him of the coming pain and suffering, said, "Yet, not what I will. But yours be done, Father." Hebrews 12:1 and2 says, "Of Jesus, the founder and perfector of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross willingly despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God this is this is the king of kings jesus does not have to be given this spirit he possesses the spirit in full measure john 334 for whom god has sent speaking of jesus utters the words of god why because he gives the spirit without measure. Friends, sometimes God gives us what we want in order to show us that it's not what we need. In order to let us fall on our faces just a little bit. But sometimes he gives us exactly what we need even though it's not what we want. That's one of the hardest lessons to learn, isn't it? And it's a lesson that... That Israel still did not learn after a thousand years. Because here in chapter 10, we find Israel crying, long live the king. But a thousand years later, when what is truly best for them is finally sent by God to them, what do they cry? They cry, crucify him. They say, I know what's good for me. It's not him. Crucify him. friends this is where the car illustration breaks down because jesus is reliable he's infinitely reliable J- jesus is beautiful a- a- attractive in a way that transcends mere handsomeness jesus is powerful and and not in a in a horsepower kind of way but powerful in a I created the stars with a word and can save to the uttermost anybody who calls on my name. That is Jesus. That is Jesus. And God gave him. He gave him, him who is truly our very best on a cross when we weren't even asking for him and we didn't even know that we should want him. While we were content to cry out, long live whatever king sat on the throne of our hearts. While we cried out, long live whatever idol we were worshiping at the time. While we cried, long live whatever lusts or passions that we were pursuing with all of our might. God sent his son, his very best. He gave us the very best when all we wanted in life was whatever Saul package we were living for. And here's the thing. This Jesus, who is God's very best for you, the same Jesus is God's guarantee that he will always give you what's best for you. If you have been found in him, if you have confessed him as Lord and Savior, and if you haven't, I would encourage you to do so today, before you leave this building. Because if you think you know what is good for you, apart from Christ, you don't. You don't. Pursuing what you think is good for you will lead you to judgment for your sin. And a just judgment. But for those who have been found in Christ, if you do confess Him as Lord and Savior, Jesus Himself is your guarantee that everything in your life that follows is God's very best for you, despite what it might appear. And that's what Romans 8:32 says. Turn in your Bibles if, if, if you can, to Romans 8:32. And if you'll bear with me for just a moment, because I can't say it any better, I want you to listen to John Piper's explanation of this idea. Okay, he says, he says, when you try to list all the good things that Jesus obtained for us by shedding his blood and rising again, when you try to list all of those, you realize this includes everything that serves our eternal good. Our eternal good, our long-term Good. We typically think of what is good for me in the short term, what I can get out of it right now. But God's idea of what's best for you is an eternal definition. John Piper continues, Do you understand the gospel logic of Romans 8.32, which says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It's a rhetorical question with an assumed answer. How will he not with him freely give us all things? All things, what does that mean? By virtue of dying for us, he secures for us all things, everything that serves our eternal good. By virtue of dying for us, he secures for us everything that serves our eternal good. If you are given singleness instead of marriage as your life, it's because the blood of Jesus secured the eternal good that singleness will do for you. Or if you're given a disability or a disease that's never healed in this life, it is because the blood of Jesus secured the eternal good that this disability will do for you. This means that there are thousands and thousands of apparently good things that Christ did not purchase for you in this life. Think of that. There are thousands and thousands of apparently good things that Christ did not purchase for you in this life because it wasn't your best. All all the good things, all the best things for you, everything encompassed in those two words, all things that Jesus did purchase for his own, those are God's best for you. His absolute best. That which serves your eternal good. That means that the blood of Jesus did not purchase the Saul package for every Christian in every instance. The blood of Jesus didn't purchase a big house, marriage, kids, perfect health, a lucrative career, comfortable living, and every other apparently good thing that you've ever wanted but his blood did purchase what is ultimately best for you in the long term. Finally, John Piper says, For those who have been covered in the blood of Christ, all things in this life serve our eternal good, including affliction, loss, and even sorrow. So let me ask you this. Small group leaders, listen up. These are great small, small group questions. What apparent good thing do you resent for, for God not giving to you? What, what apparent good thing that you have wanted and still do not have, do you resent God for not giving to you? I think if we're honest, we all probably have an answer to that question. Or, or seen from another perspective, what, what, what apparent good things? have you learned, are actually not so good for you? Maybe by painful experience, maybe because God gave you the Saul package that you wanted and you realize, oops, this is actually a mistake. So what apparent good things do you resent God for not giving to you? What apparent good things have you learned are actually not so good for you? And finally, what actual good things has God given to you that you're just missing? What actual good things has God given to you, purchased by the blood of Christ, that you're just missing, that you don't see as a good thing? You haven't tried to look at it and see the eternal good that God is affecting for you through this. And the answer to that is anything that is in your life right now that you're not thankful for. <laughs> anything all things that are presently in your life that you're not thankful for. Because if you've been found in Christ, all things serve your eternal good in him. Friends, you, <laughs> you and God have very different definitions of what's good for you. But praise be to God, he is good. He is the king who is. He is the one who sent the king of kings our very best to ensure that all of life, all things would serve our eternal good. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that your definition, your understanding of what is good for us is better than ours. We've all suffered the consequences of thinking we know what's best and then experiencing how not best that thing is. Lord, we pray that we would would learn from the people of Israel and Saul, knowing that what, what is apparently good, apparently best, is not in every case best. Help us, Lord, to look to Christ and see and remember that even when we weren't asking for him, even when we did not want him, you sent him, and he found us and rescued us from our sin. Lord, we thank you. Would you teach us? Would you be gracious and merciful to us today? It's in Jesus' name we pray.